good morning. Welcome to Faith Covenant Church. <laughs> well, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And today we're continuing a series called Says Who, where we've been talking about how to best read your Bible so that you can responsibly understand God's word to us. Now, here's something that I have learned through my time in ministry, and that is that many Christians don't have great experiences with their Bible. They know the Bible's important, they've read their Bible some, but instead of walking away encouraged or excited or feeling like they've got a better picture of what it means to walk with Jesus, instead they walk away confused or sometimes even a little bit freaked out. Uh, anyone here willing to admit they've read something in their Bible and walked away thinking, what on earth did I just read? Yeah, most of us. Worse yet, some of us have grown up under teachers who mishandled scripture and taught harmful and sometimes even traumatizing things that scar us or even push many would-be Christians away from the faith. Because the truth is, some of the Bible is easy to understand and encouraging. But there are a ton of parts of it that can be confusing, disturbing, full of moral gray areas, and oftentimes leave us wondering, what did I just read? And unless we take time to understand how to read our Bibles, we can easily end up confused or even turned off from Jesus. And so our goal with this series is to help you create a framework for how to responsibly and reasonably read the Bible so that when we come to Scripture, we're trying to arrive at the conclusions that it wants us to reach and not the conclusions that we want it to make. And so today we're going to look at a genre of Scripture that I think has the most weird stuff in it, and that is Old Testament narrative. So let's pray together, and then we are going to talk about how to read Old Testament narratives. Father, thank you for another chance to come together and to sing your songs and to look at Scripture and to spend time with each other. We are thankful for the chance to gather. Lord, we want to lift up VBS starting this week. What an exciting time for us to have ministry to so many kids. Last time I checked, we had like 120 kids already signed up, God. And so we're praying that this week is a chance for them to hear about you and to want to commit their lives to follow you, and for us to make inroads with families that need a church home. Lord, we also want to lift up the Rohrbach family with the passing of Don this week. Lord, we ask that you give them comfort and peace, that you give them wisdom as they work through all the decisions that they have to make in the coming days. Help us be a church family that gives them care and support during this time as well. Lord, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. All right, so first question we have today, what is Old Testament narrative? And uh, I spent a little time working up this handy-dandy definition of what Old Testament narrative is for us. Old Testament narratives are the purposefully written stories that retell the historical events of the Old Testament time period. Now I want to break this down a little bit because there's some important stuff in here. First of all, Old Testament narratives are purposefully written stories. When the authors of the Old Testament started writing, they did not sit down and say, you know what, I need to create an objectively neutral account 
of every single thing that has ever happened to us as a nation. That's not what they did. Instead, the authors chose to include certain details and exclude other details because they are trying to create narratives that communicate intentional ideas about God, humanity, and life through the way that those stories are told. This does not mean that the stories are fictional, though. No, they're the purposefully written stories that retell the historical events of the Old Testament time period. This is extremely important because when we read an Old Testament narrative, we are reading an ancient story. It's a story of ancient people who lived in a time with different customs and writing conventions, different understandings of the cosmos, which means that a lot of times when we read them, we feel like they're foreign or strange. And so it becomes our responsibility to try and decipher responsibly what these often strange-sounding stories are trying to communicate. Now, roughly 40-ish percent of your Old Testament is narrative. For example, the books of Genesis, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second um, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, and Jonah. These are all predominantly narrative books. And there's a whole host of other books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Exodus that aren't entirely narrative but have big chunks of narrative in them. Basically, Old Testament narrative is the bunch of stories that you read in the Old Testament. The question before us today is how do we read Old Testament narrative in a responsible way? Well, we've got three guidelines for you, and I got to warn you, I'm about to put on my professor hat. I'm sorry, I know some of you are like, ah, I finished school already and I never wanted to have another lecture in my entire life. Bear with me, this info can be super helpful as we try and read the Bible. But we've got three guidelines for reading these stories, and I'm intentionally calling these guidelines because um, instead of rules or steps, because the way we interact with narrative tends to be a little bit more flexible and expansive than other forms of writing. And that's because Old Testament narrative uses stories as the means for forming us into the people of God. Story, not doctrinal or moral propositions, is the tool that's being used here. In other words, these stories are descriptive. They tell us about what happened, but they're not necessarily prescriptive. They weren't written to give you a list of X, Y, and Z that you're supposed to do, or even a super clear doctrinal position that you're supposed to believe. It's by understanding the stories and putting ourselves into those stories that we're shaped by this type of scripture. Now, that sounds a little abstract and maybe a little bit hippity-dippity, and you're like, okay, James. So let me give you an example of what this might look like in modern-day uh, terms. Most of us we have seen a movie or we've read a book where we really identified with the characters and we felt like our hearts were being shaped by the story. For me, that's Forrest Gump. Anyone love Forrest Gump? You're like, hey man, I love that movie. Yeah, good, good. Forrest Gump, it does not ever directly tell us in order to live a good life, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Rather, experiencing the story of Forrest's life it shapes us and it helps us understand that it matters less about how educated or intelligent you are and more about the type of person you are as you live your life. 
It's by engaging with the story of Forrest Gump that we're shaped. In Old Testament narrative, it functions in a really similar way. It's the stories themselves that are meant to shape us. That being said, there are some guidelines that we should follow because with stories, it's really easy to read them and walk away with wrong conclusions. So we've got three guidelines that we're going to go over that help us get the right thing out of these Old Testament narratives. And the first guideline is this. We need to place the story within the larger stories. This is what I think is actually the most important guideline to reading an Old Testament narrative. Every story that you read is a part of a larger story, which is a part of a larger story. Jen Wilkin likes to talk about this in terms of concentric circles, which I think is a really helpful visual. So I took the liberty of making some concentric circles for us today uh, to help make this really clear. You see, the center of the circle is an individual story. Take David and Goliath as an example. That is an individual story. It's got a beginning and it's got an end. And when we combine several individual stories, we end up with a narrative unit. David is a great example of this, King David. There are all sorts of individual stories about King David. There's David and Goliath, there's David and Bathsheba, there's David running from Saul. And when taken together, all of these individual stories give us the narrative unit of King David's life. Now, most Old Testament narrative books, they are made up of several narrative units that all come together to create a theme. Take Judges, for example. Judges has a bunch of different narrative units that all tell us the story of the life of Israel under the leadership of different judges. And when we put all of those narrative units together, we see this overarching theme for the book, which is that when left to their own devices, the people of Israel tend to deviate from God's path unless God does something to correct that path, like send them a godly leader. Now, if you take all of the narrative units and all the themes from the book of the Bible and put them together, you get this overarching biblical narrative, which is really important to understand. And this overarching biblical narrative, it goes something like this. Now, in first service, everyone got out their phones and started taking a picture of this graph. I don't know if you're that interested in it, but if you are, instead of taking a picture, send me an email. I will email you this graphic in a much clearer form. So the entire story of Scripture goes a little bit like this. God created everything, and he created humans to dwell with him and to be his image bearers in his good creation. However, humans turned away from God and rebelled, inserting sin into the story, and everything started to go downhill rapidly from there. God, not wanting to see his creation in ruin, decided that he would enact a plan of redemption, starting by choosing a people group that that plan of redemption would come through. So he calls Abraham, and out of Abraham comes the Israelites. And the story of the Israelites really is an up-and-down experience. Some things go great, a lot of things go really tragically wrong. Until finally, out of that people group comes Jesus, who fulfills the plan of redemption that God has for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. The next chapter of the story is that Jesus calls a bunch of followers and sends them out into the world to proclaim this message of redemption 
while they wait for Jesus to return and finish the plan by restoring all things. It's the basic overarching storyline of Scripture. And this is important because we have a lot of individual stories within the Bible that oftentimes don't make a lick of sense until we see them and how they contribute to these larger stories. A great example is the story of Lamech. In Genesis 3 and 4, there's this really weird story about Cain's son, Lamech. Lamech basically says, you know, my dad was violent, but any man who harms me, I'll strike down 77 times. He's basically saying, I'm super duper violent. And we, we read that story and we're like, why is this angry, angry man mentioned in the biblical narrative? But then when we realize that Genesis 3 through 11 is painting a picture of the world in moral decay because of sin, all of a sudden, all of a sudden Lamech makes sense. He's illustrating how the world is going downhill, and his violence is an example of that. So fitting our individual stories inside of these larger narrative units, larger themes of the Bible, and overarching story of the Bible helps make these stories make sense. Now, guideline number two is this. Details matter. In narrative, the various details that you read have a ton of importance. Typically, your Old Testament writers, they don't include a lot of details, so when they do, they matter. So anytime we read an Old Testament narrative, we need to be asking a lot of questions to figure out the details. Who's doing what? Where are they doing it? Are there any contrasting characters? Who's the specific antagonist? Who is God using? Why? What are the main events? What's the outcome? Where do we see God? What is a weird thing that I need to look up for to make more sense? The details really matter in Old Testament narrative. And then guideline number three, and this is one of my favorites, you are not the hero in Old Testament narratives. You know, in our modern writing conventions, there's typically two story arcs. There's the protagonist, who's the person that experiences positive character development and ends up being the hero. And then there's the antagonist, the bad guy. And usually, we are trained to identify with the protagonist in a storyline. So we watch Star Wars and we identify with Luke or Leia or Han or Rey or Finn, but probably not anyone from the prequels because they're not that good. And uh, <laughs> we identify with these protagonists. So when we read the Old Testament narratives, it becomes our habit to want to identify with the people that resemble the protagonist to us. So we read the story of David and Goliath and automatically we're trying to draw moral lessons from our perceived protagonist. Or we read Esther, and our first jump is to try and draw moral lessons from the protagonist, Esther. But in the biblical storyline, there's actually a third category of characters. They're called the agonist. And these people, they're present in the story, either directly or indirectly, and they are typically the people who are impacted by the actions of the protagonist and the antagonists. Now typically, not always, but typically, the way we understand the characters in Old Testament narrative goes this way. God is the protagonist, he's the hero, but he does tend to choose sidekicks to help him. Now, the antagonist tends to be any of the people or people groups that oppose God and his people. 
This could be the Satan figure. This could be um, the people groups that oppose Israel, like the Philistines. And then the agonists, they're usually the people in the background, normally the Israelites. And the best way for us to start our approach to Old Testament narrative is not to first jump to the lens of the, who we think might be a protagonist, but instead to try and read the narrative through the lens of the agonist and then work our way out. You're going to see how that works in our example today. So we've got place your story in the larger stories, learn the details, and remember, you're not the hero in the Old Testament. Now, we're going to try and show how all of this works by looking at a passage in the Old Testament, and we're going to use these three guidelines to unpack it. But I got to warn you, this is a long passage. And the reason why we're reading most of it is that when you're reading Old Testament narrative, it is important to read the whole passage. I actually took out a couple verses for the sake of time. But when you're reading on your own, reading the whole passage is really important to grasp the story. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 17. I think if we can all uh, keep our attention through all 51 verses of it, uh, we, we will learn a lot. So let's dive in. This is verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. A champion named Goliath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing five thousand shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed six hundred shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man, and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain, these ten loaves of bread, for your brothers, and hurry to their camp. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. 
Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Not really a bad deal. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant, because he will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because He has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened fastened on his own sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. 
the stone sank into the, his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran, stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Brutal. Now the first thing we need to do is to try and place this story in the larger stories that we talked about earlier. And over time, you will end up developing a deeper and fuller understanding of the different narrative lines of Scripture. But to get you started, here are two places that you can go to help you understand these wider story arcs. And the first is that you can go to this really great resource online called The Bible Project and watch their introduction videos to the different books of the Bible. These videos will give you an outline of the narrative arc of that book and will talk about how it fits into the larger story of Scripture. What I like to do is actually before I read a passage, I will just watch that introduction video to the book of the Bible that that passage is in to help me place that passage in the larger stories. You can also do this by reading introductions in a decent commentary, but I'll be honest, it's a lot easier to watch a seven-minute video than to read a 45-page introduction in a Bible commentary. So I highly suggest the Bible Project introduction videos. But our story today, it's a part of the larger story of Scripture where God has chosen a people group for himself that he's going to work his plan of redemption through. However, this people group the Israelites, they are plagued by the effects of sin and they continually act against God's plan for them. More specifically, this particular story happens in the book of Samuel, which gives us the account of the people of Israel moving from being a group of 12 affiliated tribes into being a kingdom united by a king. You see, when God brought the Israelites into the promised land, the initial plan was that they would live under God's reign, God as their king. That way, they'd be a beacon to all the nations around them, showing how amazing this God is who saved them and acts as their king. However, nothing really went the way that they should have gone with the Israelites. They didn't obey God's instructions, and they end up in these conflicts and wars with the nations that surround them. And in 1 Samuel, the Israelites, they're looking at all of the powerful nations around them, and they recognize that there's one major difference between those nations and themselves. And that is this. All of the other nations have a king. So they beg God, please God, give us a king. God responds by saying, hey, I am your king. And if you actually followed me the way that you're supposed to, we wouldn't be having all of these issues. And the Israelites respond by saying, yeah, that's good and stuff, but please make us like the other nations and give us a real king, a human king. So God, he says to his prophet Samuel, go tell all those Israelites, if they don't want me as a king, and if they want a human king, this is what's going to happen. God says, the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights, he'll take your sons, he'll make them serve. He'll take your daughters and he'll turn them into perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and he'll take a tenth of your grain, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and your donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. So God says this to the Israelites. 
To which they basically respond by saying, yeah, that sounds good. Give us a king. So God, he gives them Saul, a tall, handsome, strong, intelligent, charismatic leader who becomes their king. And Saul honestly does a pretty good job at first. But then he stops seeking God's leadership and he becomes an ineffective and unwise leader. And he leads the Israelites through years and years of brutal and unrelenting war against the Philistines until eventually they end up in a military stalemate. Basically, Saul's done everything that God said he would do. He's taken their sons and forced them to be soldiers. He's taxed their grain, their wine, their livestock. And for years, they have fought the Philistines, never completely vanquishing them from the promised land. All of this has led the Israelites into a place of very little hope where they now stand encamped against a stronger, better equipped Philistine army and they have a king who seems unable to lead them to victory. In short, the Israelites have found themselves needing to be rescued from their own rash king whom they desired so badly and from the Philistines who were poised to overthrow them. And that brings us right up to where our story starts. Now, like I said, the second guideline is just to learn everything you can about your passage. So if you were studying this passage on your own, you'd read it a few times and start asking questions like, who are the characters? What are they like? Where does it take place? What are the main events and outcomes? Is there any interesting detail the author makes sure to mention? Where's God in this story? And a tool that you can use for this part of your study is what's called a Bible dictionary. I really like this one. It's called Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible. It's not going to answer every question that you have, but if you have questions about a person, a people group, a place, a custom, that is a great place to go. So if you're like, who are the Philistines? You open it up to P, not D, but P, and you'll be able to learn a whole bunch about the Philistines. Now, our goal here is simply to understand everything you can about the details of this passage. There's a ton that you can take away, but there's a few details that I found to be really important that I'm going to share with you. The first is who the Philistines are encamped against, and that's, sorry, who the Israelites are encamped against, and that's the Philistines. If you do a little research on the Philistines, what you find out is that they weren't just a military threat to the Israelites, but they presented the greatest existential threat to God's people that they had. They were strong, they were powerful, and they represented everything that God did not want his people to be. Something else interesting is how these two armies, they're not actually fighting each other outright. Instead, the Philistines send a representative warrior to fight a representative from Israel. And the author of this passage goes to great length to explain exactly what this Philistine representative was like. And remember, anytime an author goes into great detail, you need to take note of it, because usually your Old Testament authors are very sparse in their details. And so when we see this description of Goliath, that he was six cubits tall, that he had a bronze helmet and a coat of scale armor weighing 5,000 shekels, and bronze greaves on his legs, and a bronze javelin, and a spear shaft that was like a weaver's rod with an iron point weighing 600 shekels, we need to take notice of that. If you look up some of that stuff, 
what you're going to find out is that the author is trying to tell you that this was not only a big, strong, and extremely well-trained warrior, but he also had the world's best weapons and armor. Scale armor was stronger and more flexible than other armors, and he carried several weapons, making him able to do battle with any style of warrior. He could throw a javelin. He had a spear that he could hit you with that had a point so heavy it would break through any armor. By worldly wisdom, Goliath had every reason to be confident that he would win this fight. He's the biggest, the strongest, and the best equipped. And that's a key observation here. As the representative of the nation that challenges the existential existence of the Israelites, this Philistine is demonstrating the worldview that they have. Strength, might, technology, physical power. If we have those things, we will win. Insert our next character here, David, who when we read this story is obviously the contrast to Goliath and also to King Saul. Because while Goliath has every advantage, David is presented as insignificant without anything the world would consider to be an advantage in battle. He's young, in fact, too young to serve in the military. When the men were called up to fight, his three oldest brothers are called away, but not him. And when King Saul looks at David, he says, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight him. You're a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. In other words, how do you, a boy, expect to fight him, a warrior? But David responds, and this is another important detail. He said, you know, I fought lions, I fought bears, but this uncircumcised Philistine, he'll be like them, like a lion or bear, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Think about that. Goliath has every confidence because he's big, strong, well-equipped. And the Israelites and King Saul, they're terrified of him for the same reasons. But David, who's neither big nor well-trained nor well-equipped, basically says, yeah, none of those things matter. Because this Philistine, he stands against God. And God rescued me from those wild animals. He will surely rescue me when I fight this Philistine warrior. And then King Saul actually does something that's meant to heighten the contrast even more. Saul tries to dress armor, dress David in armor, just like that of Goliath's. But David rejects those pieces of armor and instead goes out against Goliath, just taking his sling, five stones, and his shepherd's staff. You see, Saul, he has bought into the same wisdom as the Philistines. The wisdom that says the best weapons, the best armor, the best skill, that is what counts. And David rejects that. Here's where becoming more familiar with the stories of the Bible actually helps us here. Because if you also read the chapter leading up to this, you would find that when the prophet Samuel is looking for King Saul's successor, he says, do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
This kind of ties all this together. Goliath looks frightening. By the world's standard, he is. The Israelites and Saul, they've given into this same wisdom that the Philistines have. Because of that, they are terrified of Goliath. But David, he represents a different way of looking at things. A godly wisdom that cares more about righteousness and defending God's honor and trusting in God's deliverance. And so while all of the Israelites are terrified of Goliath, David, not needing any of the weapons or armor that Goliath has, goes up against him. And as he approaches Goliath, Goliath's incredulous, he says, hey, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And then Goliath curses David, and with hubris he says, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to give your flesh to the animals. But David, trusting in God's deliverance, strikes down Goliath with a rock from his sling, and in so doing, our protagonist, God, saves his people from the Philistines and begins to increase the influence of David to eventually save the Israelites from Saul as well. So now we need to take these details and we need to tie them together. But in order to do so, we need to remember guideline number three. You are not the hero. Usually when we read this story, our first attempt at giving it meaning sounds something like this. David had courage and he faced his fears head on and defeated Goliath. And when we come across Goliaths in our life, we can be like David, face them head on and defeat them, whether it be a bully, fear of stepping up at work, or asking out that cute girl from your Bible study. If we place our trust in God, we can defeat our Goliaths. The problem with this is that by immediately identifying with David, we miss much of the nuance that this story tries to portray. So instead of jumping right to that, we need to take everything that we've done so far and wrap all of this up by asking this question. What is this story trying to communicate to its readers? Given everything I know about this story, about the details, about how it fits into the larger stories of Scripture, and remembering that I'm not the hero, what should I take away? First and foremost, I think this story is trying to shape our hearts to understand our need for a Savior and the fact that God provides one. On so many levels, this story presents the Israelites in utter desperation. They now have a king who doesn't seek God's wisdom and who God has actually taken his favor away from. And the people, they're stuck between this ineffective king and a bigger, stronger, better equipped opposing army. They are in desperate need of someone to come in and save them. They need a savior. And God sends one in David. And not only does David save them from Goliath, but he will eventually become the king that they were hoping for. Not a perfect king, but still one that is better than they had or would ever have until Jesus comes. So if we see God as the hero, ourselves as the agonists, and the Philistines as the antagonists, then it's not too hard to see ourselves in the place of the Israelites as a people in need of saving. We see our sin. We see how we screw up relationships. 
We see how we want to do the right thing, but often choose to do the wrong. We see division and strife. We see insurmountable obstacles in our life. We need saving. This is where it's so important to have a grasp of the larger story arc of Scripture. Because knowing that the Old Testament points us towards the ultimate Savior, Jesus, this allows us to read this passage and see that not only was God faithful to the Israelites here by sending them David, but he's also faithful to us by sending Jesus as our ultimate Savior who gives eternal life and directs us in how we should live right now. So when we read this story from the perspective of the agonist, we start to see this as a story that shapes our heart to recognize our need for a Savior and God's role in saving us. God is a God who saves. We are a people who need it. But this story, it's actually a lot more than that too. And we should look at some of the commendable aspects of David versus Goliath. And one of those commendable things is how David chooses the wisdom of God over the wisdom of the world. We see this in the contrast of the various characters, especially between David and Goliath. Goliath has everything going for him. His size, his strength, he's the best armor, the best weapons. He approaches this battle with what we are supposed to see as a very worldly perspective, the Philistine perspective, that the strongest and best equipped are the ones who win. David, however, he doesn't have any of the advantages that Goliath has. Instead, he has an unwavering commitment to God and God's deliverance. And he comes in and he says, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Interesting thing. Hand and paw, same Hebrew word. The paw of the bear, the paw of the lion, the paw of this Philistine. And he says to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. Now, here's what he's not saying. This is not saying when you face something hard, don't use any of the world's resources to help you face it. Just go in blindly and trust in God. It's not what this is saying. But this is making a comparison between what would have been worldly wisdom, that the way to win is to be the strongest, best prepared, best equipped, and a different kind of wisdom, that what counts is actually trusting in God's deliverance and being faithful to Him, even when you seem outmatched. How I think we should look at this is to recognize that there are some times where the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God don't align. It's not all of the time, but it does happen. And this story is asking us to be the type of people who would rather lean into the wisdom of God than the wisdom of the world. Now, one of the issues with narrative is that there's a zillion layers. There are so many other things we can talk about in this passage, like the dangers of Goliath's pride, or how weakness is winning in the Bible, or the theological significance of the line of David, or what it takes to be courageous in your faith. The point is, the more that we read this and think about it, the more layers that we peel back, gaining a deeper appreciation for how the story itself shapes us. But I think if you try and place the story within the larger stories, and if you pay a ton of attention to the details, and if you remember 
that the starting place is not to make yourself the hero, then it gives us some good guidelines to help these stories come alive and shape us in the way that they're meant to. Let's pray. God, thank you for the stories we find in Scripture. We ask that you help us be a people who go to them to be formed and shaped. We ask that as we approach these stories, you can help them become clear, giving us life rather than making us confused. Help us be a people who are committed to learning your word and living by it. We pray this in your name. Amen.